Chapter forty seven, part two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty seven, part two. A year or so later, while revisiting Stratford-on-Avon, I asked the eldest of the girls, Rosalie Flower, about the Fräulein and whether she remembered the charming walk we had with that lady through the fields. Yes, she remembered it well, but also a disappointment of herself and her sisters. While the Fräulein and I were conversing, the children had gathered daisies and violets and wild roses and strewn them on the path before us and neither of us had taken the least notice of their homage. I took the lesson to heart, and went another stage in my earthward pilgrimage. What, after all, had Shakespeare and Goethe really been to me if they had not given me eyes to read a poem acted under my very nose, as sweet as any they ever wrote? Of what use to stand on their great shoulders if my eyes were so riveted on the shoulders that I could not heed the flowers of living hearts strewn on my pathway? Around each strewn flower was a prettier rainbow than Sorby had shown me in the spectrum of rose or violet. They had shown in vain, and the dear little hearts had been humiliated. The beautiful hour in the fields could not be recalled. Its chief beauty had bloomed inside me, and withered, and I never saw it. Had I seen it at the time, it would never have withered. Let no flower of the spring pass by thee. Ah, wisest of men! The subjects of my discourse were advertised, and one on the pre-Darwinite and the post-Darwinite world attracted Darwin. I was told that he listened to it, but he rarely came to London, and probably the discourse was reported to him. I soon after received an invitation to visit him at Down, his house near Bromley. I went to Bromley with the Wedgwoods. Hensley Wedgwood was a very interesting gentleman, but inclined to put some faith in occultism. Mrs. Wedgwood told me anecdotes about her brother, Darwin, one of which is quaint. Darwin could never realize the worldwide impression made by his discovery, nor his own fame. Gladstone, then Prime Minister, being in the neighborhood of Down, had called. When he had gone, Darwin said, To think of such a great man coming to see me! The other guests at Down, besides the Wedgwoods and myself, were my friends Charles Norton and his sister of Cambridge, Massachusetts. A sister of Mrs. Charles Norton married a son of Darwin. Darwin was not in perfect health, and his wife and daughter took care that he should retire early. My opportunity for conversing with him came next day. In the soft spring morning before sunrise, I looked out of my bedroom window and saw Darwin in his garden, inspecting his flowers. His grey head was bent to each bush as if bidding it good morning. And what a head! All that the phrenologists had written was feeble compared with a look at that big head with its wonderful dome, and the lobes above each luminous eye. All the forms of organic nature had contributed something to represent them visibly in the constitution of the head to be able to interpret them. I was soon with Darwin in the garden, which was in floral glory. 
he expressed satisfaction that i had been able to derive from evolution the hopeful religion set forth in my discourse but i remember that he did not express agreement with it he spoke pleasantly of w j fox m p my predecessor at south place whom he well knew and asked me about emerson whose writings interested him but he had not been aware of the extent of emerson's poetic anticipations of his discovery many years before it was published while we were talking of these things the birds began to insist on his attention one in particular a hermit thrush perched on the topmost point of a tree continued long his marvellous song from my point of view he was justifying his hermit profession by a vedic hymn to the rising sun but darwin considered that he was no real hermit or yogi at all but had a love affair on hand and was singing a canticle to his beloved when we were presently at breakfast the post came a pile of letters which the daughters began to open separating from those of friends the large number from strangers in all parts of the world a few of these were read aloud for our amusement letters from crude people reporting to darwin observations which they believed important one american farmer wrote about the marvellous intelligence of his dog who always knew when he was about to take a walk dancing about so soon as he touched his cane one had some commonplaces to tell about his new variety of beans another something about his pigeons the rest of us laughed but darwin said let them all be pleasantly answered it is something to have people observing the things in their gardens and barnyards adjoining the house was the conservatory in which darwin carried on his experiments into this he invited me overcoming my hesitation by saying that he particularly desired it i felt indeed that it was right because i was minister of the chief rationalistic congregation and was endeavouring to transfer the religious sentiment from a supernatural to a scientific basis he took pains to show me everything there was the enclosure in which he and sir john lubbock who resided near him conducted their experiments with ants but darwin was at that time chiefly occupied with the earthworm his volume on which impresses me as next to his origin of species in value darwin's unbelief in all varieties of religious theory was not at that time known to me although a letter of his afterwards printed shows that he must have thought my vision of post-darwinite religion an illusion no word of that kind fell from him his kindly spirit his interest in the ideas animating liberal ministers indicating his desire that we should all work out his discovery in its moral applications in our own several ways it was not exactly his realm and he knew its importance too well to venture much even theoretically upon it in the afternoon we had some drives in the neighbourhood and no doubt passed by without notice the famous tom Paine tree which i visited with interest many years later the visit to the down was charming it stands in my loving remembrance as an era related to that in which i first met emerson in his home in concord but it involved a new departure in my earthward pilgrimage when dr holmes said to me you and i have had to spend many of our best years simply clearing away theological rubbish out of our paths the tone was as of a thing achieved i so received it with a feeling of being right at last but alas how much had yet to be cleared away terrible discoveries awaited me my devotion to science and my knowledge of the veracity of scientific men had been unconsciously projected into the cosmos 
Nature surely was true. The laws and forces of the universe were true. Evolution was carrying out sleeplessly the truth of things. In natural selection I seemed to find a gospel of reality. I had supposed that I had got to the heart of Darwin's works. But somehow the simple grandeur of that man, beside those little creatures he was studying, began to obtrude the shady side of nature in a disturbing way. Was that nature's truth? What were Venus flytraps but deceitful vampires? What were those little insects I used to watch so curiously in the Virginia woods, which pretended to be sticks or leaves? Their mimicry was a justifiable stratagem to escape their enemies. But why should there be this predatory character extending to all the byways of nature? Did every tint on the butterfly disguise an agony? The blossom-like flies, or the leaf and twig insects, may be disguised to escape an enemy, or to lurk for tiny victims of their own. In either case they represented a predatory universe. Renan took the generous view, as Darwin did when listening to the hermit-thrush, of the amorous heart of nature. Nature decorates herself with a flower to find a husband. But even in sexual selection there is a suggestion of resort to contrivances and subterfuges, pointing to love's weakness, not to its omnipotence. Was my old Methodist hymn not so wrong after all? This world is all a fleeting show for man's delusion given. Given. We have imported the all-enclosing delusion into the world by the fantasy that all is from an omnipotent giver. My pilgrimage from Darwin's door steadily carried me past the last giant despair, a dynamic deity and creator responsible for the wrongs and agonies of nature. 1882. Darwin and Emerson died at nearly the same time, April 20 and April 27, 1882. The relation of these two minds to each other, and to their time, is striking. In the year 1836, when Darwin abandoned theology to study nature, Emerson, having also abandoned theology, published his first book, Nature, whose theme is evolution. It was a notable circumstance that on the death of these two men, who have done away with supernaturalism, no voice of odium theologicum broke the homage of England and America. The scene in Westminster Abbey at the burial of Darwin was impressive. From the chapel of St. Faith, the body of the great man was borne by the procession along the remote cloisters. We who had long been in our appointed seats in the abbey presently heard a faint, melodious strain. Nearer, the dirge of the invisible choir approached, and when at length the great door of the abbey opened, and the choristers appeared, and the coffin laden with wreaths from all parts of Europe, a stir of emotion passed through the waiting company. There were following that coffin more than a hundred of the first men in England, and some from other countries. On many faces the grief was visible. Huxley, Tyndall, Francis Galton, Sir John Lubbock, Sir Joseph Hooker, could with difficulty control their grief. It was dark in the abbey, and the lights but feebly struggled with the gloom. There was something almost spectral in the slow moving of the procession with noiseless tread. Around in every direction the throng of marble statues were discernible, as if a cloud of witnesses gathered to receive the newcomer in their Valhalla. But it was an earthly Valhalla. The darkness of the abbey, only made visible by occasional lamps, 
might have been regarded by saints of the still radiant windows as emblematic of the curtain drawn by knowledge beyond the grave. To me the gloom deepened when the service thanked God for removing such a man out of this wicked world, but lifted a little when the white-robed choristers gathered around the three graves, those of Newton, Herschel, and Darwin, and sang a new anthem, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom. Amid the universal homage to Darwin, one adverse sentiment is widely noted and rebuked. L'univers, the Roman Catholic organ in Paris, said, When hypothesis tends to nothing less than the destruction of faith, the shutting out of God from the heart of man, and the diffusion of the filthy leprosy of materialism, the savant who invents and propagates them is either a criminal or a fool. Voilà ce que nous avons à dire du Darwin des Singes. Paris, 1900. How far away appears the year when I wrote down my impressions of the funeral of Darwin. I cannot discover in history any eighteen years so marked by changes in the moral condition of the world as those that have followed that time. It now looks to me like the closing of an epoch, ominously marked by the graves of the great whose ideals are interred with them. The Roman Catholic organ in Paris, which in 1882 was denounced for its brutal words on Darwin, had its revanche in 1900. On the eve of the International Peace Congress, about to be held in Paris, L'Univers publishes an article that falls on our midsummer like arctic cold. The spirit of peace, it declares, has fled the earth because Darwinism has taken possession of it. The pleas for peace have been inspired by a faith in the divine nature and origin of men. They were all seen as children of one father, and war was fratricide. But now that men are seen as the children of apes, what matters it whether they are slaughtered or not? So runs through its column the terrible article, terrible by reason of the passionate earnestness with which it represents its day of judgment. It is small consolation to defend moral corollaries of science by saying that where the bee sucks honey the spider sucks poison. For to those filled with horror by the murderous aggressions of strong nations on the weak, the proverb can only suggest that the spider is taking possession of the world. Seated here in Paris while the exposition is presenting at the close of the century a picture of the harmonious industrial nation distributed through all nations, L'Univers opens before me a dreary prospect of decivilization and decadence. The humanitarian spirit that breathed through the literature and art of England and America for fifty years, 1832 to 1882, is entombed in a sepulchre which few even garnish, while the mourners grown grey, who share its spirit, are helpless as the women who heard the cry of their dying leader, My power, my power, why hast thou forsaken me? 1903. It has become necessary entirely to revise the bearings of science on ethics. My friend Goldwin Smith, whose eighty years have only matured his wisdom, foresees fatal results to the next generation unless science can construct something to take place of the failing religious conscience, and Herbert Spencer sees that the fatality has already come. I quote their letters elsewhere. Apprehensions of this kind have long beset rationalistic preachers and publicists, of whom some have been swept away by the floods of jingoism and militantism. Had the Roman Catholic writer in Paris, who said Darwin had slain peace, 
followed his own doctrines to their logical result, he would have seen that they include belief in the providential character of all the evils and agonies of the world, also that Darwin and the apes are equally a part of the eternal order with the Pope and his crusaders. Yet I cannot help recognizing the terrible fact under the anathema on science. The basis of democracy is as much the misquoted affirmation of the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. Its strictly religious essence has been lost by the substitution of born for created. Republicanism, democracy, Negro emancipation were all based on belief in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The religious sanction, having broken down its place, cannot be taken by science until all human beings are scientific. No class of men in the modern world are of higher character in all the relations of life, private and public, than the men of science. The man of science lives in the presence of tremendous forces. He is trained in the knowledge of cause and effect. His hourly instruction is in laws that fail not, and which no prayer or penitence can escape. He knows that his every action, to man or woman or child, is taken up by forces impartial between good and evil, pain and pleasure, and carried on to unending results. Science alone understands the reality in this world of that hell and heaven which superstition has located in a future world, where they have lost actuality in the minds they once controlled. The men of science may not believe in the continuance of individual consciousness after death, because, as Darwin said, they are exacting in the matter of evidence. But a very long existence is given by the scientific imagination which travels from the dawn of life on our planet to the reign of man, and anticipates the remotest future of nature which present forces are determining. Were it possible that the masses of mankind could be developed out of the mass and become individual thinkers, science would surely reach them with its saving grace of self-restraint, while delivering them from the ethical fictions which obstruct the moral freedom essential to happiness. But is this possible? The masses of mankind have a reverence for science, because they live and move and have their being amid its practical results, and witness its miracles. They are steadily withdrawn from the ancient miracles wrought by gods and saints for remote lands in other ages, not by criticism or rationalism, but by the miracles of science benefiting the people of today. In May 1874 the scientific men predicted several weeks before it occurred that the tide would rise to a great height in the Thames on a certain day in June. It happened to be the day of the burial of Dr. Livingstone. Barriers and breaks were built by the riverside, and on the day named the vast crowd which had gathered at Westminster Abbey at the funeral of Livingstone repaired to the bridge embankment to see what would happen. There was a halcyon superstition that the high tide of the Thames could not rise while the swans were nesting. They were just then nesting, and so it was that there was a sort of contest between superstition and science. When the waiting thousands that day saw the tide steadily rising and beating against the high barriers which protected their homes, I could see in many faces the rising tide of reverence for science. By innumerable experiences of this kind the newer science has supplanted the old, and the institutions founded on the antiquated science, the churches and temples, can only maintain themselves by their importance to the practical interests of mankind, 
how many millions would be impoverished were all temples closed. But the high personal character of scientific men generally is not due to the results or to the discoveries of science, which is as impartial as nature between good and evil, and as progressive in the instruments of destruction as in those of welfare. Their superiority is derived from the scientific training, the habit of thinking, of reflection, the philosophic mind engendered. Even men of science do not always attain the scientific habit of mind. Mr. Crookes adopted spiritism after experiments with two women. One afterwards confessed the other as an exposed impostor, whom he was probably too polite to deal with as searchingly as with his chemicals, or as he would have dealt with male mediums. One of these mediums gave semi-public séances near the British Museum every week, and two scientific assistants of this institution went on one occasion provided with a pocket apparatus for illuminating the room. After the medium had been tied in the cabinet, the lights were lowered, and the spirit moved about in the room. One of the two from the museum clasped the apparition while his colleague illuminated the room, despite the blows of a manager rained on them. The spirit proved to be the medium herself professedly bound in the cabinet. The facts being undeniable, Alfred Wallace wrote to the Times, explaining that the spirits might conceivably in some cases utilize the body of the medium. That the spirits should select for this unusual course an evening when scientific men had come with an apparatus to expose their, the spirits, chief medium was an absurdity that occurred to everybody except Wallace. The brain of Wallace is a fair loom, but one could not look to it for any judgment on the soundness or unsoundness of the threads it weaves. As for Mr. Crooks, he remains inexplicable. I last met this agreeable gentleman in a company at the Royal Institution, and Tyndall told me that when in conversation he had alluded to spiritism, Mr. Crooks was silent, and it seemed to give him so much pain that he concluded never to mention the subject to him again. End of chapter 47, part 2